I will pray, and then we'll begin our time of study. Jude 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Father God, we thank you again for your word, and we thank you that you warn us You remind us continually of the right way in which we ought to go, and in contrast to the wrong way, the the narrow path versus the broad way. And I pray, Father God, that we would be those who seek the way of Christ. Father, thank you for putting in Scripture examples of those who did not follow your way, that we might see if we are in any way coming up short to pray the prayer of David, search me, Oh God, try me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked or hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. May that be our desire as we consider uh, these topics. We ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Again, we're returning to this uh, mini-series where we're taking a more in-depth look at a few of these characters that Jude takes the time to mention. You know, sometimes there's a criticism about expository preaching, and that criticism is it's like you, you take so much time to delve into each of these words, and there is always the risk that you kind of, uh, you know, you uh, get lost in the weeds. You get so many things going that you're not really remembering what the main point is. On the other hand, we need to remember that There was a reason why the authors wrote what they wrote, and when they wrote it, they had expectation that those who read these words would have some inclination. They would have some background. There would be theology that they would understand. There would be a familiarity with the the characters or the uh, events or the accounts that they are unfolding. And so when Jude mentions the way of Cain, and he mentions the error of Balaam and then the rebellion of Korah, he had the expectation that these folks either would have some familiarity with these characters and be able to uh, readily identify with them, or the thought would be that perhaps someone in that church would be familiar and would take the time to explain what was going on. Well, guess what? You probably know some of these things. You might know some of these accounts better than I do. I, I, maybe I know a little more than some of you, so I want to share with you from God's word what the error of Balaam is, and that's what we're looking at. We're looking at this example. Now, I want to stop because we've used these terms so frequently. I want to give you some definitions by which we can continue to uh, to understand our text. And so I want to remind you that the term apostasy has both a general sense and a technical sense. And so when I give a, a state, when I say apostasy, we could be talking about something in general or we could be talking about something very specific. And the general definition, as you see there, for apostasy speaks of any falling away from the truth and will of God. So we can speak of apostasy in a very broad and, and general way. The, the term implies that there is at least some knowledge of God and his ways and that a person intentionally rejects it. Now, in the broadest sense, 
That means every human being is an apostate. We actually use a term that's interesting. In Genesis chapter 3, we refer to that event described in Genesis 3 as what? The fall or the fall of man. Well, what do we mean? Man fell into sin. He fell away from a right relationship with God. And you begin to see that in a general sense, that's an apostasy. He moved away from the truth that he knew. We read in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, these words. Notice that uh, this is speaking of all humanity here. For even though they, all humanity, even though they knew God, I always like to say there is no such thing as an atheist. The man who says to me, I'm an atheist, I say, well, no, you're actually not. We can get into some kind of war. Well, how can you say that I'm an atheist? Because the Bible says, well, I don't believe your Bible. I don't care if you don't believe the Bible. The Bible says everyone knows there's a God. And it says right here, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. What is Paul saying? They moved away. They fell away. From God, They knew God in some sense. Again, verse 20 talks about creation having revealed this uh, to them. They knew God, but they have rejected him, becoming futile in their speculations. The they in this text refers back to verse 18 and speaks of every and all people who live ungodly, unrighteous, unsaved lives. It says in verse 18 that they seek to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You know what that means? They're trying to hold it down. It's like, I remember one time, I, this is going to be a strange illustration, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Uh, my cat had a problem with his ears. I had a 12-pound cat. 12-pound cat. I'm like 180 pounds. No competition, right? I got to put some drops in his ears. Well, he wouldn't let me hold him to do it. So I had to get my wife to help me. And the only way that I could hold down a 12-pound cat was to physically lay on him and just have his ears up here while somebody's trying to put the drops. And even then, he could push me up. Well, if my cat pictured sin, unbelievers are trying to suppress something like that. It's just pushing up, trying to come out. Uh, all the time, they're suppressing the truth. The truth wants to come out, and they're trying to push it down. But the truth, I guess I had it backwards. The cat's truthful, right? Okay. Anyway, on the spot uh, illustrations, I apologize. All right. Anyway, they're suppressing the truth. They're trying to hold it down. And how are they trying to hold the truth down? With unrighteousness, by living more and more depraved lives. And if you read Romans 1, isn't that what unfolds there? It says, notice well that, that God's word says they very much know God. All sinners know God exists. They just refuse to accept it. It's their, it's their first apostasy. But Paul says not only do they know about God in general, being the image bearers of God, they also know his basic mandates for living. And I find it fascinating. Romans 1, we, we use it all the time. We say we live in a Romans 1 culture. And, and what, what does it end with? Paul says, although they, the same they who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, the same they who know God but, but uh, have become futile in their speculations, although they know the ordinance of God, they know the precepts of God, they know in their hearts it's wrong what they're doing, that those who practice those things that were listed in the verses above uh, are worthy of death, 
They not only do the same, but they give, also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Certainly, that's the culture in which we live. And so we would say that all who sin fall short of the glory of God. Again, fall away from the glory of God. They have willfully fallen away from the knowledge of God that they do not know. This is the general sense of apostasy. This is what we all experience. But there's a technical use of the word apostasy and of the word apostate, the one who is uh, uh, practicing apostasy. And that's what Jude is primarily dealing with. And there are two forms of this apostasy. And I think we should, is it not there? Next slide. I'm going to pop up. The technical definition is two forms, so I define it this way, that apostasy is a falling away from key and true doctrines of the Bible into heretical teachings that claim to be real Christian doctrines. So you're saying you're exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and you're saying that, that Jesus, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, that's apostate because they say that Jesus is a lesser being uh, than God, that Jesus is a created being. The Mormons would say that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. And, and so you have these, but they try to pass it off as somehow being Christian. Uh, so uh, the second aspect is a complete renunciation of the Christian faith, which results in the abandonment of Christ. So I'm not going to embrace anything of Christianity, and I'm going to do everything I can to undermine that teaching. In both cases, apostates will, one of the characteristics of an apostate is they will try to propagate what they understand, what they believe, their doctrines. They will not all do it from a pulpit. Some will do it privately. You might have some that are in your families that would never stand in front of a group of people and proclaim something, but they'll be sure to tell you what they think about your Christianity and what you believe. A couple of weeks ago, we considered one of these persons that have abandoned the faith, one who knew the truth of God, but unlike his parents who disobeyed God's will and later repented, Cain created his own approach, his own way of worship, one that was not sanctioned by God. So the way of Cain in verse 11, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, becomes the root of all false worship, all those who seek to worship God on their own terms rather than according to what God has communicated in his word. And one such way would be to say that we contribute anything to our salvation. That's an apostate teaching. The Bible does not teach that. God does not teach that we have anything to offer uh, whatsoever. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says that he saved us not according to uh, our own works and righteousness, but he, he washed us. He regenerates us. He's the one that has done all these things. This morning, I want us to look at another apostate, one who caused many in the nation of Israel to fall away from God. And let me set the stage for our look at this character. For an almost 40 years, the nation of Israel had been wandering around the desert. I mean, just think about that. If you've ever been to a desert, just think about wandering around for 40 years. Not by yourself. You're a group of 2 to 3 million people. For 38, 39 years wandering, think of all the sanitary issues that would have come up. Think about all the headaches and the heartaches that would have been part of this. So nearly 40 years, Israel has been romping around in the wilderness. 
And by the time of the events that we're about to look at, their sojournings outside the promised land were about to come to an end. Israel drew closer and closer to the promised land, and as they did, terror gripped the kings of the Canaanite nations. They had heard about the God of the Hebrews. They knew what God had done for them some 40 years before in bringing them up out of Egypt. They had heard of miracles taking place. Some of them had reports of seeing this mysterious cloud that was following and leading Israel all this time. For a time, of course, those fears had subsided when Israel first came up out of Egypt because, well, because of Israel's sin, they this were kind of moving chaotically and randomly through uh, the land. They were not making a beeline for uh, the, the promised land. But those kings, I promise you, for 38 years, 39 years, they were watching every single move that Israel made. News of the miracles again took place, and it must have kept those kings on edge. But all of this uncertainty about what could happen was now coming to an end because Israel was on the march. They were coming. Now, I have a map that none of you are going to be able to see. Okay? And it's kind of squashed out because I'm just trying to get it in here. So that's the, the Dead Sea, okay, the top portion of the Dead Sea. If you see the blue line over on the right, it says Moses with Israel. Down at the very bottom in the middle is Moab. I'm just trying to kind of put this all into perspective for you. And Israel doesn't come up through the south, as you can tell. And they don't come right up through Moab. They go way to the east, and they go around Moab. And they go up, and they defeat, of course, King Sihon. They go up further to the north, and they defeat another king who's even more formidable by the name of King Og. And... Uh, they, they have defeated all this, and now they come to the northern portions of, of Moab. And you can see kind of in the top middle, it says Israel's camp. They, they go down off of the mountain, and they're sitting in the plains of Moab. They're looking to cross over the Jordan River, go into Jericho, and make their way into, you can see in the upper left there, Canaan. So that's where they are. And so having defeated the king of Bashan, Og, having defeated the king of the Amorites, Sihon, the people of Moab, as Israel is coming back and now is camped at the northern re uh, re region of their, of their area, what do you think the Moabites were thinking? We're toast. That's a theological term, of course. We're about to be defeated. Uh, we know what's coming next. However... They had heard about a Chaldean magician, and his name was Balaam. Balaam had earned a, reputa a reputation of being a psychic of no small skill. In Joshua chapter 13, verse 22, he is referred to as a diviner. The King James says he's a soothsayer. His skills would be in a direct violation to the law of Moses, who in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 and 11 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, who uses divination 
one who practices witchcraft or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer or one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. Balaam was one such character. And he will be used by the king of Moab to try to bring a curse upon Israel. They want to see Israel destroyed by the power and the skill of this man by the name of Balaam. Well, we'll look at the error of Balaam, and in doing so, we do so to educate ourselves and to prepare ourselves to avoid the apostasy that brought so many in Israel down. We will consider three points, Balaam's motivation, second, Balaam's messages, and finally, Balaam's manipulation. So we begin with our first point, Balaam's motivation. I thought it was interesting to consider what the name Balim, Bal, ba, uh, uh, now I can't even say his name because I was trying to say it in Hebrew. Uh, uh, well, I keep wanting to say Baal, uh, Balaam, excuse me, <laughs> total brain fade there. Uh, the name uh, Balaam literally means, you ready for this, not people. His name means not people. Now, it could be taken to mean not of the people. So Balaam could have been regarded as an outsider, a a foreigner. He's a stranger, and, and it could be taken that way. But it could also be used to mean that this is one who makes a people no longer a people, which is very interesting to think if that was his motivation. Some thus ascribe to the meaning of the name Balaam devourer or destroyer because he devours or destroys people. How does he do it? He curses them. Evidently, he had some ability, I don't know, obviously through some supernatural demonic means to bring about the destruction or to the devouring of people. He brought curses upon them. It would seem then that this is a name that perhaps he took upon himself. I don't know how many parents would name their kid devourer of people. Now, what do you want to name your kid, honey? Let's call him destroyer of people. No, I don't think so. So he might have taken this upon himself as it spoke of the power he had to curse people and to make them not people. Amazingly, as revealed in the word of God, God would use Balaam as a prophet for a short time to make some rather remarkable prophetic statements, to utter prophecies that kind of blow our mind because this man is an apostate. This man is not a believer. He believes about God. He's like believing like the demons believe, but he doesn't believe in God. By the time Balaam comes on the scene, the nation of Israel was nearly three million strong. Reports of the God of Israel, the miracles he performed, and the way he protected his people had spread not only through the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, it had reached all the way to the river Euphrates, to the areas of Mesopotamia, where Abraham himself had once come from. It uh, It would be safe to assume that Balaam had himself heard of Israel's exodus out of Egypt, It is likely that some of the knowledge of the God of Israel even was known by Balaam as he was in Mesopotamia because, well, Abraham was from Mesopotamia, and he was rather well-known. Balaam, we know, recognized Yahweh, even confessed him 
However, Balaam also assumed something. He assumed that he could control Yahweh, that he could control the God of Israel. And so we are introduced, as you think about the account, and all of this, by the way, is found in Numbers 22 through 24, that uh, the king of uh, Moab, King Balak, invites Balaam to come. And he invites him to come in order to curse the people of Israel, to give a prophecy by which the people of Israel would be made not a people. Because why would Moab not want them to be a people? Because they didn't want to give up their land. This presented a problem, however, for Balaam. He knew something of the way of Yahweh, of the Lord, but upon learning that his services to curse Israel would mean quite a, uh, uh, would be amply rewarded, we find out what truly motivated Balaam. It was not the fear of God. It was not the knowledge of the truth of God. It was money. What motivated Balaam was greed. We learn of this according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. We read this, Forsaking the right way, they, referencing apostates, have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, and here it is, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. He would rather be paid for doing something evil and wicked than to not be paid and do something that is holy and right. This is his motivation. Again, what motivated Balaam is not the truth of God, although the truth of God was revealed to him and through him. Rather, he wanted the reward that he hoped he would receive by carrying out the desires which he felt was rather simple, the desire of the king of Moab. Well, if you follow the story as it unfolds, Balaam was just as ready to sell his soul for money as Judas was ready to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Well, when the king of Moab's delegation showed up on Balaam's doorstep and offered him money if he would prophesy a curse on Israel, he was more than eager to come. And yet he also had some sort of restraint, if you recount the story. He knew he could not comply with the request until he first did something. And he said, I have to first inquire of the God of Israel to see if I can come. Isn't that interesting? This would indicate that he knew enough about God to do that much. And upon making this inquiry, we see that he does it. And we read in Numbers chapter 22, verse 12, God's response to Balaam. What did God say? Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people. Why? For they are blessed. God says something once. You ought to do it, right? Uh, obviously, we say if he does it twice, you better really listen. But as the account unfolds, the king of Moab interpreted Balaam's response when he said, God told me not to go with you. The king of Moab said, you're really just using this as a ploy to get even more of a monetary advantageous deal. And so the king of Moab, so bent on cursing Israel, sends greater dignitaries authorized to give an even more lucrative deal to Balaam. Now, Balaam's been told by direct revelation, do not go. He knows the truth. But when that money offer got just that much sweeter, what does he do? I'm going to go. He becomes, he, you're seeing the apostasy unfold right 
before him. Balaam was unable to resist the offer. It seems that he must have imagined that he would be able to to control or to coax or to, to manipulate the God of Israel into changing his mind. How many times have you seen that successful in Scripture? God, just change your mind, please. Why does he do this? Why does Balaam do this? Because it's his nature. This is the will of the natural man. Despite the clear communication of God's word, Balaam went. However, God would make it clear to Balaam, who is now being drawn by the greed of his heart, that he is not permitted to say anything that God did not want him to say. So it seems like there's somewhat of a concession by God. It's not. He's just using all of this circumstance to bring about his own purposes. But you can go, but you will only say what I tell you to say. And Balaam's like, that's great. I'm, I'm going to get paid for this. According to Scripture, Balaam set out the next morning with great eagerness as he envisioned that he was about to receive much Moabite gold upon completion of his services. He's on his little donkey traveling and making way to the king, and little did he know that he was actually on the threshold of death itself. The angel of death, we're told as we read in the account, is in his way. The angel of death with his sword drawn and the prophet escaped only because the beast upon which he was riding had a clearer vision and a better sense of spiritual things than did Balaam. It's pretty bad when the donkey is more spiritual than you. Coming to realize the spirituality of the donkey, Balaam began to reflect a bit. He communicated to the king's delegation that he would only be able to make those statements that God put in his mouth, but so he continued. Although Balaam was sobered, he was not yet sobered sufficiently to actually cancel the trip. What continued to motivate him was not the fear of God, was not the truth of God, but the money that he could come to possess. He wanted to collect his wages. Beloved, in this way, Balaam becomes a prime example of apostates in the church who are more than willing to stay on the payroll of a church or of a denomination or of a seminary while denying and betraying the very truth of God as reflected in the doctrinal statements of those institutions. Some of you may know this. I'm trying to decide how to say this. You may know this about me about my opinion of this particular person, but it is a true statement. Charles Finney is not a, uh, a person that I'm a fan of whatsoever. Charles Finney referred to the imputation of Adam's sin upon his descendants as theological fiction, thus denying both scripture, you can read Romans 5 and find that that's uh, an erroneous statement, as well as the doctrinal statement of the Presbyterian denomination under which he was ordained. In order for him to become ordained, he had to stand before a group of men, and he had to be called, do you believe in the doctrine of justification by faith? Do you believe in the imputation of the sin of Adam? Do you believe in the imputation of the righteousness of Christ? And he declared before a council of men who said, this is our statement, yes, I believe those things. And then he moved from that moment to deny all of those teachings in his teachings throughout New York. That's an apostate. All he wanted was the ordination so that he could make 
the money. He wanted money and power and prestige. Well, Balaam's motivation was his money. Let's look secondly at Balaam's messages. Balaam's messages. We might say, what are Balaam's prophecies? The primary source for the account of Balaam, again, found in Numbers 22 through 24. If you read these three chapters, I would encourage you, if you have some time this afternoon, to do that. Balaam is noted as uttering four prophecies. He gives four messages or four prophecies towards Israel that were uttered in the presence of the king of Moab. So he's giving these messages three times from three different, uh, from different perspectives. Say, uh, Balaam sought to curse Israel in these, these messages, only to have God force him to do what? Bless them. Bless them. Balaam's fourth prophetic statement is given needlessly, and like the others, it only infuriated the king of Moab, and yet it is one of the most remarkable statements, one of the most incredible prophecies that you might consider when you consider that it came from the mouth of a pagan prophet who was no prophet of God. Well, let's walk through Balaam's four prophetic utterances, these four prophecies or messages. And the first message is what I would entitle separation. Is separation. The first of Balaam's prophetic statements centered on this phrase we're going to read in a moment, a people who dwells apart, a separate and distinct people set apart by God himself. That's the blessing of God on Israel. By the way, when we become believers, God separates us unto himself, and we become the recipients of the blessings of God because he calls us out of this world. He calls us to be, uh, calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, we read of this in Numbers 23, verses 7 through 10. Follow along. He, Balaam, took up his discourse. Here's his message. He says, from Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountain of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? As I see him from the top of the, of the rocks, and look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart, and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Now, that's a prophecy. And he's giving it to the king. The king says, curse Israel. Where, where's the curse? I can't do it. He said, there's no way. He's speaking on behalf now uh, as a prophet of God, and he cannot do it. Balaam's dilemma is that he's actually stuck now between two impossibilities. You ready for the two impossibilities? He thought maybe he could change God's purpose. God said to him the first time, you will not curse them because I intend to bless them. I'm going to stand up and give a prophecy now. I'm going to curse Israel. And what does he do? I can't do it. I am unable to change God's purpose. And then he's also trying to challenge God's power. That maybe if I'm just prolific enough, maybe if I'm just dynamic enough, maybe if I just use the right incantations that I can overpower God. King Nebuchadnezzar thought he could overpower God. That didn't work out for him either. 
In verse 9, Balaam sees the distinct distinctiveness and the exclusivity of the people of God and the total inability of the Canaanite nations to overpower them. We see this purpose of God still in effect today as the people of Israel have prospered despite all efforts of multiple hostile global powers to decimate or destroy them. Remember, uh, of course, in 1967, there's 60 million uh, Arab Arab, uh, powers trying to decimate two or three million in Israel, and Israel, not, not giving God the credit, was protected by God. Balaam's exclamation in verse 10, though, reveals that he understood something, that the gods of Mesopotamia were not true gods, and the gods of the Moabites, well, they were even worse. And he ends with a statement, where could Balaam find the true God and enter into the joy of God's salvation? He looks down and he says, "Uh, how can I die happy like these people who are being blessed by God? In essence, he's saying, What is the secret of dying as a righteous man? Oh, I wish somebody, wouldn't it be great if people just asked you, what's the secret of dying as a righteous person? Let me tell you. He had the answer right before him. He looked down upon the people of Israel from the mountains of Pisgah, and he saw the presence of the Almighty God. And how did he see the presence of the Almighty God? I so wish I could see that. I stood on the mountains of Pisgah, near Mount Nebo, and I looked down into the plains of Moab, and I thought about this passage and thinking about three million uh, uh, Israelites there camped out, and the tabernacle would be there, and what else would I see but a pillar arising from that tabernacle up into the heaven as the Shekinah glory of God manifests itself. Here, the answer's right before him. What God had he ever seen that would do something like that? He knew knew that these were a distinct, separate people. Well, Balaam's second message, his second prophecy, would center around the idea of justification. We find it in Numbers 23, 19 through 24. Balaam begins this prophecy with the profound and very accurate words. Words, are you not familiar? Have you not heard these words? Have you thought to ascribe them to Balaam? We often will hear these words and think, well, that's something Moses said. What did Balaam say? God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and he will not do it. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? So he's trying to bring what? A curse, and this is the best he can do. Balaam had hoped he'd be able to somehow twist or distort the words or the purpose of God so as to offer no future hope to Israel. Just something that would discourage and dissuade the people of Israel and allow the king of of Moab to have his victory so that he could get his, Balaam could get his gold. But his effort was futile. He may not have realized that God had made a promise to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis chapter 12 that said, I give to you this land and no one will ever take it from you. In in, uh, Numbers uh, 23, verses 20 through 21, Balaam declares, Behold, I've received a command to bless. Now, can you imagine you're you're the king of Moab, 
you say, hey, Balaam, curse them. Okay, here I go. Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. So he's saying these are a blessed people. These are people that are protected by God. how, How can I do anything that's going to change that? Now, he saw them as being... He says there's no misfortune, there's, no, there's nothing evil taking place among them. In truth, there was sin among the people of Israel. In the very moment that he's making this prophecy saying, there, I don't see misfortune in Israel, I don't see Israel having any problems. It's almost kind of the reverse uh, a statement of Asaph. Why do the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? He's kind of saying, uh, I see the, the righteous, they're, they are the righteous and they're prospering. Nothing's wrong with them. Well, there's still sin in Israel, people. But their sin had been dealt with. Their sin had been put under the blood and therefore put out of God's sight. It began back at the Exodus when God said, put the blood on the doorpost and I will see it and I will pass over you. It continued as they offered up sacrifice after sacrifice in the wilderness and the blood and the blood Pictures justification being covered by the blood of a greater lamb that was coming, the blood of Christ. That God did what was necessary to make his people right with him. When God deals with his people's sin, there is nothing anyone else can say or do. You cannot curse the one who's been justified. Uh, Paul would say these very this, have this very idea in Romans 8.33 when he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. If God has said you are right with him, then you are right and no one can ever curse you. You will never be cursed. What a blessing. Because of what God has done, God was more than delighted to dwell in the presence of his people. He was there in the Shekinah glory. It was a a picture. There's now for us, the now therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We possess the spirit of Christ within us by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We have the glory of Christ within us. We have justification. That's what he's he's seeing here. Well, it brings us to Balaam's third prophecy, his third message. And this one, I would say, centers on the idea of sanctification. It's in Numbers 24, verses uh, 3 through 9. And it seems evident that Balaam understood that he was speaking now by direct inspiration of the living God. Uh, And I'm not here to try to work out all the theological issues with that. We think, how could God use this pagan king this way? Well, he used a donkey, too, and we know that he can do that, so... Uh, anyway, he's now speaking. How do we know he's speaking by, he knows he's speaking by direct inspiration? Well, in Numbers 24, uh, verse 2, it actually says that the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. And that's a, a statement that's generally referred to what? The prophets. Here, the Spirit of God has come upon Balaam. And now Balaam, in this section, uses 
language, I, that is, I have to just say, has to be inspired. He refers to God in verse 4 as Shaddai. Some of you are familiar with the Hebrew phrase El Shaddai, translated generally as God Almighty, God the Powerful One, the Mighty God. And he himself now refers to God as Shaddai, the Almighty, the All-Sufficient, the All-Powerful God. This was Israel's God. As Balaam looked down on the camp of Israel, he was not simply looking at a people that he thought, well, perhaps the king of Moab could conquer them. He sees who? El Shaddai. He sees a huge obstacle in the king of Moab's way. God Almighty was dwelling within them. And so he says in Numbers 24, verse 5, Balaam declares, How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. To think just, why would you call it? I mean, these guys have been nomadic for 40 years. You would think, I, I used to go camping out in the desert. We'd go out and camp for uh, three, four, five days, and you're just eating off of a campfire and everything. And it's fine when you're out there, but you know when you come home, you smell like smoke. Everything smells terrible. Can you imagine 40 years of camping? And the tents, what would they look like? And yet here the prophet says, how fair are your tents? Well, what made them fair? The dwelling places are lovely. What makes them so lovely? The Israelites, the presence of the holy God who had set these people apart. When this prophet looks at Israel, he sees them again now as distinct because God was with his people. How could they not be blessed? We read in verses 8 and 9 of Numbers 24, God brings him out of Egypt for he is like the horns of a wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries and will crush their bones in pieces and shatter them with his arrows. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. A pagan prophet says, Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. Where did we get that statement from? Well, that's in verse 9, and it's an echo of the very covenant God made with Abraham himself. In Genesis 12, 3, we read these words from God, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Does not blow your mind that Balaam, whose only motivation for doing any of this is to get money, he's not trying to honor God. He's not trying to glorify God. He's not trying to build up the, the people of God. He just wants a paycheck. And when he tries to open his mouth, all he can say is, blessed is everyone who blesses you, Israel, and cursed is everyone who curses you. This pagan apostate prophet who knew something about God yet fell away from it for his own hopeful gain recites the Abrahamic covenant. Before him in those tents, by the way, lay an entirely new generation of Israelites, some three million strong. For the generation that came up out of Egypt, they had not believed. 
They had apostatized. They had fallen away, and their bodies rotted in the desert. But this new generation had been blessed by God. It would seem that a repenting and trusting heart had come upon the people after lifting up, after the lifting up of the serpent in Numbers 21, verses 6 through 9. That all takes place just before Balaam comes on the scene. We read in Numbers 21, verse 6, that the fiery serpents bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. That's terrible. Can you imagine? We're just out in the desert doing our own thing, and all the snakes come up and start biting everybody. And you're seeing all of your family and your friends are dropping like flies, okay? They're just falling down dead. And what's going to happen? What is God doing? It seems that God is weeding out the people who still possess a spirit of rebellion who Uh, within them upon seeing the terror of the serpent what happens the people exclaim in numbers 21 7 we have sinned if you want to be right with God you start with that statement we have sinned they were terrified that they were all going to die as a result of this as a punishment as they for what they deserved but they were told there was a remedy you remember the story right Moses would set up what we call in theological circles, a type or a symbol. He made a serpent of bronze and he cast it on, it says, a standard. He put it on a wooden stick. He takes a serpent, an emblem of a serpent, and he puts it on a standard, a piece of wood, and he says to the people in Numbers 21.8, it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Beloved, it is a picture that sin has infected every one of us. We've all been bitten by the serpent of sin. And you all will die. But there is a remedy. The fiery serpent becomes a type symbolizing Christ who has made sin for us. That if we, who took our place on the cross, the words of Moses here then are the gospel. Jesus revealed how this event actually pictures faith in him in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. We're familiar with these verses to a certain extent, but listen to how Jesus applies this. It says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So the the picture is there. So that everyone that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Look to me and live, Jesus says. Look to me and you will be healed. Look to me and no longer towards the things of this earth and you will enjoy the prospects of eternal life. And then the verse that we're so familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish having been bitten but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that through th- that the world might be saved through him. Beloved, this is God's remedy for sin. The world looks at the cross and considers it ludicrous. How could it be that one might be healed uh, of a snake bite in the way that Moses described? Can you imagine? I mean, okay, Brett and I are going to go hiking and a tent, uh, a, a Timber Rattler comes and bites me in the leg, and he says, hey, I'm going to make this thing that looks like a snake, and you just look at it, and you're going to be okay. I'm going to be like, dude, call 911. 
I can't imagine that the doctors, the physicians of, in the tribes of Israel were thinking, what on earth is Moses thinking he's doing? That's not medical. Follow the science, Moses. I can't imagine that they just thought that was ridiculous. Then Jesus comes along and he makes it even sound more ridiculous. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. Look to me. Trust in me. Believe in me that I am the sin bearer and I will cleanse you from your sin. I will give you newness of life. skeptics in the church today look at that message and say no go see the psychiatrist go see the social workers go get on a government war, uh, 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 welfare program but God's salvation hinges on just one thing simple faith simple faith in the person and work of Christ this is the remedy that's available to all who will do what look upon Christ. What was the great exclamation of John 1.29? Behold, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Look on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why do I share that account with this study of Balaam? Because it's interesting to note that after this event, there's no more murmuring that occurs in the camp of Israel. The people were no longer impatient from this point. Israel moved forward now in this moment in joyful anticipation of victory. This had a profound impact upon Balaam who saw Israel going forth. This is no longer a nation wandering the wilderness in confusion and chaos. This is a nation that is intent to conquer in the name of the Lord their God. Well, it brings us to the fourth and final prophecy the final message and that's of exaltation exaltation this one centers on the idea of exaltation and it's found in numbers 24 verses 15 through 24 specifically let me read verses 16 and 17 as well as 19 Balaam makes one of the most remarkable declarations you would ever hear uttered from the mouth of an unbelieving pagan apostate he says in verse 16 the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. I see him, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. What ought to amaze us is that again, Balaam, this apostate prophet, envisioned not some just near fulfillment of this prophecy, but this prophecy has what we would regard as a far fulfillment. What is that? He envisions the coming of Messiah, 
He envisions the return of Christ long before David ever prophesied, long before Isaiah ever prophesied, long before Daniel ever prophesied. Balaam describes the coming of Messiah as a star and a scepter, which are symbols of heavenly divine power. Balaam's prophecy foresees what we would regard as the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ when God, when Jesus uh, rules over, he takes dominion over all the nations. This would look past the tribulation, past the rise of the Antichrist. He sees Christ making an end to all such things to be reigning now as King of kings and Lord of lords. These four prophecies, these four messages bring a sense of clarity concerning God's purpose for Israel, beloved. God promised Abraham that through him and his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God's purposes, purpose, uh, purposes in the salvation of humanity, his purpose in the granting of grace and government and glory all center. The reason why we are here is because God focused all of his attention in this moment on a tiny, little, stiff-necked, rebellious nation known as Israel. And he saved a remnant out of that people. He promises a savior from that people. He promises to keep that people in the land. In this regard, we should credit Balaam that he had such a comprehensive understanding of God's word. Isn't that the way it is? Sometimes unbelievers can give you a better insight into God's word than believers because they see it from a different perspective. It is against all this light, however, that Balaam sins. Is it any wonder Jude puts him on display as a prime example of apostasy? Look at all that Balaam knew all that Balaam experienced, all that Balaam was being taught by God himself. And yet at the end of the day, he rejected it all so that he could get his paycheck. An apostate by definition is a person who once had a good knowledge of God, uh, had knowledge of God's truth from which he has now deliberately turned away. Thus, it is found in the teaching and practice of Balaam. And that brings us to our final point very quickly, Balaam's manipulation. Balaam's manipulation with every attempt of Balaam to curse the people of Israel. It failed, of course. Uh, that brought much displeasure to the king of, Moab, uh, king of Moab. And rather than pour out blessing upon blessing on the people of God, that uh, 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 curse on the people of God, he brought blessing upon the people of God. As you read the account, it causes much rage within the heart of, the, of Balak, the king of Moab. Because of this, Balaam not only saw his monetary reward flying away, but he also likely imagined now a noose around his neck. Four times he tries to curse the people. He can't, and then he comes up with this great prophecy. He's now thinking, you know what? I'm, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. He knew it was likely that Balak would put him to death, and Balaam at this point is not so concerned about money, but what? Just staying alive. But he would like to get his money if he could. That just reveals the depth of the corruption of his unregenerate heart. What was it that Balaam devised then by which he might keep his life and get his paycheck? And very interesting, Jesus Christ gives us the title of, uh, of this in his words to the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 
2, verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against you because you, uh, because you have there some who hold to the teaching or the doctrine of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and commit acts of immorality. Jesus says, when all this other stuff didn't work, if you cannot curse the people of God from, with, uh, from, outside, from the outside, then let's just devise a plan by which they will corrupt themselves from the inside out. Very interesting. How, what does he say? Well, you know the story. Have the women of Moab seduce them, allure them into participating in your culture, have them receive your gods, get them involved in the licentious practices of your Moabite religion, because if you do this, if you just say, throw the women at them, get them to come in, they will be enticed, they will come in, and their God will do what you couldn't do to them. God will take them out. God will punish them. Well, Balaam's plan to manipulate the people of Israel to sin worked splendidly. The Israelites who participated in this immorality brought God's judgment upon themselves. What is amazing to consider is that even after all of Balaam's experiences, the grace of being spared death because of a talking donkey, the, the, the graciousness of God to use Balaam to speak the words of truth and blessing, the opportunity to hear from his own mouth the promises of the coming star and scepter of Israel. Yet with all of this, Balaam rejects those truths. Why? Because he wants his paycheck. He wants his hell-damning gain. In this way, the account of Balaam serves as a warning for us against apostasy. Again, apostasy is what? At its core, a sinning against the light of the truth one knows about God it is a deliberate preferring of the deeds of darkness rather than the deeds of light. I submit to you that if an epitaph were to be written on Balaam's tombstone or grave, none could be better found than the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. For if we go on willful, sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's Balaam's epithet. Again, according to Joshua 12, uh, 13, 22, Balaam died, and he died at the avenging swords of Joshua's army. Balaam is a biblical example of how not to live, how not to behave, how not to receive the hope of eternal life through faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the examples you give to us in Scripture. And Lord, while this man's life so abundantly reflects rebellion and rejection of you, we thank you that you've included it in the Holy Writ that we might learn from it how not to live. We thank you that you have saved us, redeemed us through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have looked upon him who has been lifted up. I pray that that truly is what each have done in this room, and if not, that they would this day. Now, Father God, we do not want to be found among us anyone who has a sinful, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. May we believe, may we follow, may we live rightly for you, we ask in Jesus' name.
Well, thank you so much for being a part of our Bible study hour. We look forward to uh, meeting up with all of you again on Friday for our chili supper cook-off. If we don't see you then, we'll see you next week. You are dismissed.